Let's turn now to the word of God, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15 and verse 1. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, the Sanhedrin council of the Jews, and bound Jesus. He was already described as bound, perhaps bound all the more, to show him to Pilate and the people and to discredit him, bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. We've considered in our studies of these chapters the three trials, religious trials, before the Jewish leaders, and now come the three hearings before Pilate. But Mark, remember, is writing something in the nature of an evangelistic tract. And so he abridges much, and we don't get so much here, the three trials teased out for us, or the three hearings before Pilate, they're all really drawn together to make it easy for us. But in verse 2, we begin with three humiliations for Christ. That's what we'll be looking at in a devotional manner in the passage before us. We want to see the work of Christ. And even before we come to Calvary, there are these humiliations. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it, or as we might say today, it is as you say. But there was more to it than that, as we read in the other Gospels. Over the three hearings with Pilate, Christ made it very clear to Pilate in what sense he was a king of the Jews. My kingdom, for instance, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then would my servants fight? But you see no army. You see no force. I'm not here to be a king in this world. He made that very plain to Pilate. The Jewish leaders, the chief priests, were trying to pitch this, as it were, to Pilate, as though the claim to be a king and king of the Jews meant a rival to Caesar, meant the overthrow of Roman rule. And this is something that Pilate should deal with and it should be put down or he would be dismissed by Caesar. Pilate, the Roman procurator or governor of the region, he feared that. But Christ explained to him, my kingdom is not of this world. He explained to him that it was a spiritual kingdom that he had come for, that he was about truth, and so on. And Pilate understood that, and he saw through what was pitched to him by the Jewish leaders. Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it, the first humiliation It is the degrading of the status of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tried as a criminal before the secular 
authority. An appeal for the death sentence. Someone only fit to be got rid of and dealt with as a criminal, bound and bundled in front of the Roman procurator with demands for sentence and execution. The first humiliation, the deliverance to Pilate, is the destruction or the attempted destruction of the status of Christ. One moment, even if they did not believe in him as Messiah, he is unmistakably a mighty servant of God, a prophet whose power they cannot explain, who can heal thousands, who spoke and preached like no other men, who commanded the vast audiences and crowds wherever he went, taught with authority and such clarity, such, in such an unusual manner, and brought light and understanding, and constantly preached repentance and remission, that is, taking away of sin. So he has status in a religious nation of a kind. He's listened to. He's followed. He has disciples. He's clamored for. All that must be stripped away. And he must be reduced in status and humiliated and turned into a criminal, a felon, one arrested and dealt with by the civil authorities as such. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. Three things in particular are identified in the four Gospels. Perverting the nation, that meant a number of things. Of course, perverting the nation, making it unruly, unrulable disturbing it so that the Roman authority would be without any power and influence and ultimately rejected, perverting the nation, turning them into revolutionaries. Of course, that's a false charge and Pilate sees through it because Christ, as I've explained, has said, my kingdom is not of this world. The second charge was forbidding people to pay their taxes to Caesar. Well, you know that was an outright lie. Christ taught the opposite. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your worldly taxes and dues and expenses. But they lied in many ways and brought false witnesses to turn him into a criminal, if they could. And the third thing is the claim to be king or ruler that we've already touched upon. They accused him of many things, but apart from the explanations that he gave to Pilate, as explained in the other Gospels, he refused to answer any of those specific charges. Christ bore himself with great dignity, and Pilate marveled. Why is this man, he no doubt said to himself, why is he not cringing and pleading? I can terminate his life. I'm being called upon to do that, to execute him in the most terrible and painful way. Why isn't he defending himself and pleading? 
There he is. Is he a king? He has the bearing of a king. He has complete calm. This is something which he is expecting. And he's at peace with it. And he has such dignity. And Pilate was astonished, amazed. So say the Gospels. Pilate marveled, verse 8, astonished at his bearing. For that's the first humiliation, the destruction of status. And now comes the second, in verse 6, the second in this passage, at any rate. Now at that feast, feast of Passover, it may have happened at all feasts, but Certainly at this one, the that is in italic, it isn't in the original. Now at that feast, he released unto them, the Roman procurator, one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. Well, surely, thought Pilate, they will want to release Jesus of Nazareth. Surely they will want to release him. He's done so much good among them. He's healed so many of them. And in amazing healings, he has such standing among the people. Surely this vast crowd has no question. They'll choose to release Jesus of Nazareth against the wishes of the chief priests who want him dead. But Pilate was wrong because the second humiliation is that the people, by choice, what a momentous choice, by choice, freely, voluntarily, they will reject Jesus of Nazareth and prefer Barabbas. Verse 7, And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him. Barabbas himself had committed murder in that insurrection. What was that? How interesting it is that whereas three Gospels point out that Barabbas was guilty of rebellion against the state, against the Roman authority, and murder, one Gospel... John's Gospel doesn't mention that. It chooses to identify Barabbas by another characteristic. Barabbas, it says, was a robber, a bandit. Why does John put it that way? Well, he ignores the fact that Barabbas was a rebel, guilty of insurrection, in the city of Jerusalem, first of all, leading an armed troop, the ringleader of the whole thing, and guilty of murder. He ignores that. Why does he ignore it? Well, because John's is the last gospel, and he knows the people know that already from the other three gospels. What he, under inspiration, chooses to say about Barabbas is that he was by character by nature, by background, a thief, a robber. 
So we get an insight into Barabbas. This violent leader of rebellion, what was his background? He was a highwayman. He was one of them. The gangs, the bands, the robbers that hung out in the hills and hovered over the passes and broke into caravans, trade caravans, lone travelers with their favorites and robbed them and left them for dead. He was one of them. His name, Barabbas, means son of his father. That's very suggestive. Was it an adopted name? Or was it his birth name? Was he indeed in a line of highwaymen, violent robbers? Like father, like son. That's speculation. Barabbas was nothing but a professional, lifelong robber. A violent man and a robber of people. And John chooses to throw the spotlight on his entire background and character. Whereas the others tell us what he'd done in the city, which had led to his arrest and his conviction. So on the one hand, there's Barabbas, a seasoned criminal, no good at all, with probably a great list of crimes, and now murder in the city. And he is the one who is going to be preferred to Jesus of Nazareth, Christ the Lord, the one who had healed so many, the one who proclaimed the pardon of God and peace, the love of God, redemption that he would secure and purchase, the one who did everything for nothing, Barabbas who robbed for money, for riches, however he lived in some other place, Christ who walked around as a poor man, took no reward from anyone when a charlatan could have made a fortune as they do today if they pretend to any capacity to heal. And they preferred the convicted criminal to Jesus of Nazareth, Christ, their healing, compassionate Messiah. So the first humiliation is a tearing away of his status. By the way, everybody is in this. Have you torn away the status of Christ? I did before conversion. Many people do. They say, oh, Christ, yes, I think he was a good man. What have we done? We've torn away his status. We've reduced him to a man. We think we're saying something good. Oh, he was a good man. We're tearing down his status of the eternal Son of God, the Saviour of the world, the Messiah who came, the one who everlastingly has been equal with the Father, a member of the Godhead. There are theologians and churchmen who do this. In this city today, in various churches and cathedrals, there are those who dress up in all sorts of refinery 
and parade as leading churchmen who write in their books they do not believe in the deity of Christ. They've torn away his status and defamed him. So they're represented in this, just like the leading Jews who handed him over, bound like a criminal, to the Roman authorities. And the second humiliation, the choosing of Barabbas and the rejection of Christ, an intelligent choice by the people. Crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas any day. And we've done that before conversion. We consciously, deliberately, willfully, intelligently chose this world rather than the kingdom of God. We chose sin rather than holiness. We chose unbelief and atheism rather than Christ the Savior. We robbed him of his status. We made a deliberate and an evil choice And there'd be a third humiliation, which represents us too, as we go on. Verse 8, the multitude began to desire that he had done, that he followed tradition and released a prisoner. Pilate remonstrated, verse 9, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. I don't know whether I should, but I feel inclined to digress just for a moment or two. Envy. The chief priests delivered him for envy. How they envied him. They couldn't heal. How they envied him. He could command multitudes. They couldn't. How they envied him. Some of the priests were believing in him. And they hated that. Full of envy at Christ. They wanted to get rid of him out of envy. They could see that he was attracting all the attention. And they suddenly felt insecure that they would be robbed of their position and denounced. Do you know the difference between envy and jealousy? There isn't much difference, but there is a difference. Envy, strictly speaking, describes the pain we feel because we haven't got something that someone else has. Envy describes that cauldron within. I ought to have that. I should have that. That should be my lot. That's envy. It's an inner pain. Jealousy, strictly speaking, is when it turns into hostility against the person who has what we want. And we speak against them and denigrate them and gossip against them because they have some favor or benefit or gift, or influence, or position, or praise that we don't have. And we hate them for it. Envy is the pain within. I should have it. 
Jealousy is the lashing out. Is there envy or jealousy in us? Just an aside, dear friends. What is envy? Jealousy. It has an engine. And the engine is pride. I ought to have it. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. I should have it, not them. Not them. So I've got to put them down. It's pride. It's also prayerlessness. Does not the scripture say, ye have not because ye ask not? It's prayerlessness. It's also faithlessness. Discontent. Be content with such things as you have. That's our calling. Because I have said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. We have the very best in Christ, in God, in heaven, in spiritual life, in wisdom and understanding from the scriptures. Our envy, our jealousy, these are just marks of a backslidden state inside in some respect. But that was just for us. I come back to verse 10. He knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy, but the chief priests moved to the people. You could translate that urge to the people that he should, that Pilate should rather release Barabbas unto them. But they were responsible, the people. They were readily urged and they responded. Pilate remonstrated, I've read it, verse 12. What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? Oh, there must have been thousands of sermons preached on this text. And it's usually simplified into what will you do with Jesus? And it's a valid question. It was asked of the crowds. What will you then that I do with Jesus? And the question comes to us, yes. What will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? Will you choose him or this vain and passing world? Him or unbelief? Will you choose him and heaven or godlessness and everlasting banishment and punishment? But they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate tried again, what evil hath he done? What intelligent answer did they give to that? All we read is, they cried out the more exceedingly, crucify him. They didn't want a reason. They didn't want to think. They just wanted Barabbas and away with Christ. That's unbelief. I noticed that all the militant atheists, Professor Dawkins and all the rest of them, they say that to have faith 
is to abandon reason and thought and thinking. Oh no, friends, it's the other way round. When the people were asked, are you sure you want to banish Christ and release Barabbas, banish the healer, the preacher, the man of righteousness, the one who many say is Messiah, and choose the lifelong criminal and murderer, the vicious one. What evil has Christ done? Just do away with him. There's no thought. There's no reason. There's no intelligent application. Just get rid of him. That's atheism. That's unbelief. That's where there is no thinking, no rational mind. The response of sin, the response of the heart. I want my moral liberty. I want my self-determination. I want material things. I don't want the things of the Spirit. I don't want God. I don't want redemption. I don't want eternity. Why, dear friends, it's atheism that is an abandonment of all thought and a capitulation just to sin. So Pilate, verse 15, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And we come, just as we come to begin to conclude, with the final humiliation. The first, take away his status. The second, willingly choose the alternative, Barabbas. The third humiliation, be hostile to him. Show him violence and hatred and contempt. You see the three steps? Reduce Christ to a man. Choose this world. Oppose him. You see the three humiliations in the conduct even before Calvary. Verse 10, 16, And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band, the whole cohort. I can't see that. Not all 600. It can't be meant literally, but obviously a vast number of them. The whole band, says the text. But there must have been hundreds to warrant this description. And verse 17, they clothed him with purple, plaited a crown of thorns, put it on his head, began to salute him in mock worship. Hail, King of the Jews! Smote him on the head, punched him also, say the other Gospels, but smashed on the head with a reed, more than a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him, was mockery, verse 20, when they had mocked him. All these things they did. They clothed him with purple, 
part of the mockery. No doubt an old soldier's cloak, discarded and faded imperial purple. Plaited a crown of thorns. Why thorns? Thorns, worthless things in the minds of the soldiers. Give him a crown, they said. Obviously not a gold crown. Certainly we're not going to gather green branches and make a crown that would resemble an athlete's prize, such as they had in those days. What we'll do is gather up these thorny sticks and ram them on his head. Worthless, his crown. Thorns, something worthless. That's what we think of him, worthless. All these things, we're all there. Today they're saying religion and the Christian faith are great evils. Atheism has become so audacious now, they say crazy things. Richard Dawkins says religion is the cause of all wars. He doesn't know any history. He's out of his depth here. That's certainly not the case. The vast millions that have been executed have been ideological wars, not even false religious wars. But they're all trying to make a case. Religion is harmful. Don't you know you've got to hate it? It's harmful. This is what they were saying when they put a crown of thorns on his head. Give him a crown of thorns. The king of the worthless. The king of the rubbish. The king of the decadent. And the untrue and the ridiculous. And the absurd. And the dead and the harmful. That meant something. It also hurt. But it meant something. This is the hostility. This third class of humiliation. The mockery, of course. The false worship. What does that indicate? Fearlessness. Arrogance. You get to the point in cynical unbelief if you reject Christ where you're quite fearless about your position. You hate him, you slander him, you despise him, you take no notice of him, you ignore him. Fearlessness. The mockery reveals this arrogance, this fearlessness. And then they smote him, did spit upon him, contempt and active hatred So in general, the three terrible classes of humiliation, one follows the other. And they're represented in us and in all society in opposition to Christ. And then they delivered him up to be crucified. Friends, let me close on this note. Nobody spoke for him. Nicodemus, leading Jew, quite affected by him, but he wouldn't speak up for him. None of those who believed in him, among the priests, many, the text says, believed in him. 
but they were afraid to speak up for him. Nobody spoke for him. The disciples, they were afraid to speak up for him. Peter, who had said, if everyone else falls, I will stand. He'd already denied him to protect himself. He had nothing to say. There was nobody spoke up for Christ as he accepted humiliation after humiliation. And then they prepared him for crucifixion, the scourging, the leather thongs on a stout wooden handle and attached to the end of each thong was a piece of metal, a sharp piece of metal. And there were two lectors, lectors who flogged him, one on one side, one on the other. And Christ was bent forward over a stone. That's how they did it. Stripped and lashed and lashed and lashed until the wounds gaped. They say, the experts, that half to two-thirds of people who were scourged died as a result. And the sight was terrible. No wonder he needed Simon to bear the cross for him. He could scarcely walk after the scourging. We believe the vicarious sufferings began with the scourging. But the main suffering was yet to come on Calvary's cross. The three great preparatory humiliations. And yet, and yet, for all that, the love of Christ flowed. And he died on Calvary to bear the punishment for the sin of all who he would save. And he suffered in love for us. For all that was done to him. He sent forth his spirit after his resurrection or at the time of his resurrection and revealing at Pentecost to save souls and to work in the hearts of millions and millions of people down the history of time to melt their hearts, bring them under conviction put within them new desires to seek and find him and to cry out to him. For all that was done to him, he saves and transforms and makes us his own and takes us safely all the way to glory. So we look at the preparatory sufferings of Christ and our purpose is that there should be kindled within us such love for him and dedication to him.